HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. This is Elena Santagade, host of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for the past year, and I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio made from two recycled shipping containers because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories from the world of cheese. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show your cheese love by selecting Cutting the Curd in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. When we launched HRN's Hall of Fame, one of the first people to receive word of their nomination was Chef Cesare Casella. In 2016, he teamed up with Heritage Foods to launch Casella's Heritage Prosciutto to preserve endangered species of livestock and save over 40 heritage pork farms. But Cesare's story starts way before that, and you're about to learn more about the, quote, chef with the rosemary. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. On today's show, we're introducing you to four more HRN Hall of Fame inductees. They're all growers and makers doing tireless and delicious work to cultivate good, clean, and fair food. First up is our friend Cesare Casella. Growing up outside of Lucca in Tuscany, Cesare worked at his family's small trattoria called Vapore. It's there that he began learning about raising pigs, butchery, and curing meats. Since moving to the U.S., Cesare has shared his knowledge as the Dean of Italian Studies at the International Culinary Center by writing multiple cookbooks and through appearances on Top Chef, Iron Chef, and No Reservations. You can always count on Cesare to have a fragrant sprig of rosemary tucked in his pocket, and you can always count on him for poignant insights on food. Here he is in conversation with Patrick Martins and Emily Pearson from Heritage Foods and HRN's The Main Course OG. Cesare, welcome. We're a big fan. Thank you. Of, of people like 
if you could judge how much terroir someone has, it's like coming out of your nose. You know how to do so many things. You know so much about the seasons, about culture in general. You know, I'm mean, really one of a kind. Cesare Casella, thanks for being on. Why you say that because I have a big nose? No. <laughs> oh, stop. I thought you were going to say there's rosemary coming out of his uh, big Italian nose. So, Cesare, I look forward to answer, asking this question. We've been asking everybody, what is a dish that says peace and community and culture and nourishment? A single dish and a single bite. Beans and oil. Beans and oil. Because the beans is a peace. How they growing, how you harvest. The oil is a, think of the, the olive tree. Think of the olive. If... Uh, you want to uh, symbolize the peace, you see the, the branch, the olive. How beautiful. I'll tell you, you know how you know Cesare is a great guy? We said a plate, a dish, or an ingredient. And he answered one for both, basically. He went ingredient. That's beans, very... And oil. I mean, that's very Tuscan of you. subversive, you know. You don't need a big, complicated dish. You need a single thing bathed with a touch what of olive What is the quote oil. from Leonardo uh, da Vinci at the end of your email? Simplicity is the... Ultimate sophistication. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Fantastic. Our next Hall of Famer is visionary cheesemaker Andy Hatch. Here's Elena Santagate of Cutting the Curd to explain why she and her co-hosts, Diane Stimple and Aaron Foster, nominated Andy for this recognition. Andy is a beloved member of the cheese industry, known by many of our listeners from his many appearances on the show and also by the incredible cheeses he makes, Pleasant Ridge Reserve and Rush Creek Reserve. You know, Andy is doing more than just looking out for the little guy. He is looking to preserve and grow a middle-sized segment of the cheese industry that can significantly bring wealth and independence back to our rural communities. I spoke with Andy earlier this year on air, right after a recent trip he took to Australia. Here's a bit from that conversation. Uh, it occurred to me that, you know, we need as an industry to invest in the vision of the future that we want. And if, if we continue to simply uh, think only about our own businesses, we might end up in a place uh, we don't like. You know, working in food and agriculture, it's so easy to have your head down and focus only on your own survival. But Andy is really trying to inspire others in the business to look up and look around and make sure that uh, we're having agency about the direction that this industry is going in. We, in, we're producing cheese in these remote rural areas, and we're shooting cheese out in these pipelines, and right. then sucking cash <laughs> Mnemonic back tubes. in. You know, it's it's a vehicle for bringing money back into um, rural into your America, yeah, and, and in um, your communities. And so, you know, my thinking about what that looks like going forward, you know, how we're going to grow that, bring more money back into these rural areas. Right. Uh, I think there's there's cause for concern for these mid-sized producers like us. I'm not somebody who thinks a large company is inherently worse than a small one. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the consolidation we've seen, um, you know, instance by instance, it's hard to object to. What I'm worried about is that if this pattern um, continues, uh, that we will end up in a place where there are, um, you know, a smattering of small kind of farmer's market scale producers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, operating regionally. And then on the other end of the spectrum, 
you know, four or five big conglomerate right. producer companies right. selling through four or five conglomerate distributors right. to four or five conglomerate retailers. Andy isn't just worried about the future of the cheese industry. He actively wants to change the direction we're going in. I came up with a couple of ideas that, you know, could be useful for producers, for distributors, and for retailers to keep in mind when, um, you know, thinking about uh, the vision for the future. And then, so for producers, I think uh, we need to continue to uh, work cooperatively. And I think we do a pretty good job of that. I also think um, cooperative marketing can be really effective. Mm. Uh, you know, I take, I'm from Wisconsin. We have this, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board, now the Dairy Farmers yeah, the dairy of Wisconsin. Dairy Farmers of Wisconsin, new Just branding. Just renamed yesterday. But all that is, is is farmers pulling their money together to help market themselves. And it's an amazing force. That's a handy segue maybe to, to what I think retailers can be thinking about. And the no- most important thing retailers can do in, a, in general is, is uh, grow the market for artisan cheese. Mm. Now, that's obvious and easy to say. But you know, what are we, 370 million people in this country? There right. are a lot of Tons people of buying a lot of cheese. cheese eaters. And, and I think that we need to concentrate on converting people from you know buying industrial cheese right. to buying artisan cheese. It's really cheese. that education piece that's... Right, Necessary. so all of these kind of mid-sized companies that, that need to grow their sales, um, rather than duke it out with each other mm-hmm. for the existing customers, we need to you know, find more customers right. and bring people over from crap cheese totally. to, to good cheese. That's why we're naming Andy America's first official cheese czar. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Welcome back to Meet and Three. Our third Hall of Fame spotlight is on one of the most respected and renowned farmers in the Hudson Valley. Since becoming the Stone Barn Center's first official employee back in 2003, Jack Algier has worked to build an integrated farming operation rooted in land stewardship, innovation, and community, as well as a training ground for young farmers, chefs, changemakers, and the public. For this week's Hall of Fame episode, I got to visit an old friend. My name's Jack Algier, and I'm a farmer, uh, director of Stone Barns Center for Food and Agriculture. I worked with Jack for four years at Stone Barns, a nonprofit working to make the food system healthier and more sustainable. Much of what I know about food and farming, I learned at Stone Barns. The nonprofit sits on an 80-acre farm a little bit north of New York City and just east of the Hudson River. I'm here to care for this land and help support this community, uh, get more connected to their food and to the ecology around us. 
The Barns are also home to the nonprofit's partner restaurant, the acclaimed Blue Hill at Stone Barns, led by chef Dan Barber. The campus is a hub for education, training, and innovation in agroecological farming. Jack has worked this land since the nonprofit was founded back in the early 2000s. He also grew up on a farm, a small homestead outside of Westerly, Rhode Island. So we had big vegetable gardens, goats, chickens, pigs, uh, and our neighbors had the sort of complementary sheep, vegetable, cattle, and we all kind of had saunas and spent a lot of time in the woods. When did you decide that you were going to farm? I actually thought that I was going to be a professional musician, so I grew up playing drums. Um, My grandmother gave me a snare drum when I was five years old, and I really never turned back, and so I thought I would go to conservatory to Berkeley, actually, for for jazz, drums. And it wasn't until I kind of realized all the issues that were happening in the food system that I just kind of made a hard left turn to plant science to try to figure out why that was happening. Stonebarns is focused on building a truly sustainable food system. They train farmers, work with seed breeders to trial different crop varieties, turn food waste into animal feed or compost, host fellows from different disciplines, and open the farm to the public for tours and programs. Meanwhile, Jack and the other farmers steward the land, designing a system that relies on as few inputs from off the farm as possible. So the way you get to a self-renewing system is you use all the parts of the landscape to support each other. That isn't just a vegetable farm or an animal operation they, or a greenhouse system. They, they really they can function on their own, but, but only with a lot of input-driven kind of uh, system. So in this case, they're all complementary parts, sort of organs to a whole. One of my favorite examples of the farm's complementary parts is the lay rotation. So we have this, really what's called a lay rotation, which is an herbal lay, which is an old, old idea of uh, a no-input system. So no fertilizer, no no other than just animals and seed. Lay rotation fell out of fashion after World War II when chemical fertilizers became popular as a quick fix instead. It's sort of like advanced crop rotation. The land spends a year growing grains, a year growing vegetables, and then five years growing grasses grazed by animals. So I'm going to run you through seven years really quick. Seven years and 15 seconds. Okay. So we have this pasture that is a mixed grass perennial pasture. At this time of year in June, we're going to put pigs on it. And the pigs are going to turn the grass in and sort of plow the whole thing. And they'll, they get moved over little pieces of the ground until the ground is pretty well bare in open soil. And they've basically done the cultivating for us. So we'll, we level it off and plant sorghum. It's really good, tall grass that is an annual that it blocks out any of the regrow of the perennial pasture. We graze it with sheep. We then roll it down and plant our fall grains, like wheat, rye, barley. In the winter, we, we spread clover under all of it and alfalfa. And then in the spring, we have this grain crop that comes up and we harvest it in July. Then underneath all that harvested grain is all this clover, and then we put turkeys on it, and the turkeys graze off the clover. And then in the fall, we open up the clover and plant garlic. And that following spring, we plant potatoes and winter squash and the rest of that clover. And at the end of that season, we turn in all those vegetables after the big harvest and we plant grass. And that grass goes through its first year, and then the next four years after that, it's grazed with sheep and cattle. Over those seven years, the lay land has accomplished a lot. 
It's grown vegetables to feed people. Different crops have given and taken different nutrients to and from the soil. Grasses have stopped perennial weeds and fed ruminants, and the soil's been stimulated and fertilized by the animals. The exercise that the land gets actually makes the grasses that come out after we harvested grain and fed turkeys and fed pigs and fed sheep, after that, the grass is better, and that's without adding anything. This is like exercise. Like, where does that energy come from? We do that and we get stronger. Those examples can only happen when we integrate all these different kinds of agriculture together again, the same way, like, if we have different uh, disciplines and talents and we get together and talk about them together, then we actually learn a lot. We learn more as a collective whole from being able to cross over different ideas and skills. And the same thing works in a really physical way with the land. Speaking of whole thinking and sort of diverse disciplines being present together, why does it matter to involve eaters or chefs in the conversation about growing? Everybody matters in the food system because we're all shaping it. It's our culture, it's our cuisine, it's what makes us who we are. And at the end of the day, the farmer is kind of a, a response to that. So our capacity to create is entirely attached to the capacity and curiosity of the eater and the creator, everybody who's working with this product at the end. When chefs and eaters get more excited about this and allow that creative and subtle kind of work to come back into their thinking, then it's not just about faster, bigger, cheaper. It's about quality. It's about savoring. It's about pleasure. And it's art. At the end of the day, um, we can embrace art back into that thing for all of us and reverence. Thanks to Jack and his team for instilling in me and so many others reverence for the land, for what it has to offer, and for what we owe to it as eaters. You can hear more about Jack and Stone Barn Center on episode 344 of The Farm Report with Lisa Held. If you want to get up close and personal with Jack and hear his insights on the growing pressures that farmers face between climate change, economic challenges, and shifting public demands— He'll be at Slow Food Nations in Denver at the end of July and participating in their Innovative Farmer Summit on the 21st. Go to slowfoodnations.org for more information. For our last story, we're moving from dirt to concrete and highlighting a true trailblazer of the growing urban farming industry. Viraj Puri is the co-founder and CEO of Gotham Greens. He's a pioneer in the urban farming movement here in Brooklyn and a recurring guest on The Farm Report. Back in 2016, he sat down with Aaron Fairbanks to talk about the path that led him to a hydroponics greenhouse on a roof in Greenpoint. I slowly started reading more and more about our modern agricultural system and just the enormous impact that it has on the natural world. Um, agriculture is the largest consumer of land on the planet. It's the largest consumer of fresh water. Uh, approximately 70% of the world's fresh water withdrawals go toward agriculture. Um, it's the leading source of global water pollution in terms of water runoff, so et, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it, I started to recognize these growing trends, and then I was also exposed to controlled environment agriculture or greenhouse agriculture mm-hmm. and saw that using certain techniques, it could address a lot of those issues. It could use far less land, far less water, could eliminate all sorts of agricultural runoff. So it was a perfect meeting of the minds of uh, deploying technology to address resource considerations. 
He and his partners Eric Haley and Jennifer Nelkin Frymark were drawn to Greenpoint in their search for a roof. The neighborhood was changing and developers were looking for new uses for former industrial sites. They found a roof, designed and built a greenhouse, and started growing. But pitching Brooklyn-grown produce in the days before the borough's urban farming renaissance posed its own challenges. We got a lot of puzzle looks. People were a little skeptical. Um, a lot of people wanted to taste the product first. Sure. You know, we tried to pre-sell it even during the construction phase. And, you know, we had to raise a lot of money to build that first greenhouse. It, you know, it, was, it cost over a million dollars. So um, there was definitely some skepticism in the marketplace. And we had varying degrees of success along the way uh, of levels of interest. Um, most people sort of said, look, this sounds like a great idea. You guys look like you've assembled a good team. We like the concept. But the proof is in the pudding, so right. to speak. So once you guys have built the facility and you actually have some greens for us to taste, smell, touch, um, come on back and, and we'll give it a whirl. And the proof was in the pudding, the success in the salad, and the game changer in the greens. Whole Foods was a customer who was so impressed by their produce that they decided to build a greenhouse on top of their new store in Gowanus. It, it turns food miles, this whole notion of food miles, and, and, and turns it into food footsteps. It doesn't really get much closer in a, in a mainstream retail environment. I think they were impressed with what we were doing and the consistency and the reliability of this premium quality local product that they were getting day after day. And uh, they were, we, we weren't being able to produce enough of it, frankly. And right. um, so they, they saw this as a really great alternative to the conventional produce or coming from California that was four, five, six, seven, eight days old by the time it hit the shelf. And and uh, customers were really responding to, to what we were doing. When asked about the role he thinks urban farming will play in the future food economy, Viraj said, My belief, and this is, this is obviously a personal viewpoint, is that supplemental at best. Um, I don't think urban agriculture is necessarily going to replace more conventional agriculture. I think there's uh, for a variety of reasons. One is, as you noted, we're, we're sort of crop constrained. Um, mm -hmm. To successful, there's only certain types of uh, agricultural commodities that can be grown profitably on a commercial scale using current technology in a controlled environment. And as you pointed out, leafy greens are one of them. Things like tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers. So really, vining crops, mm -hmm. crops that grow on a vine or crops that grow sort of like a head lettuce, leafy green, work well. I think urban agriculture still has a very meaningful and significant role to play. I think to address all the issues facing our agricultural system and and it just gets people just the food literacy aspect. People just know more about healthy food and they're they're more exposed to food production. So there's still millions of tons of produce that's shipped into our cities every day that's grown using unsustainable methods in places that are really really far away. So the more of that that we can offset and the more dollars we can keep in our local economy and the more uh, kids and adults alike we can teach about local food, I think are all major, major positives. While there's only so much we can grow, mere footsteps from store shelves, the rise of urban farming over the last decade has had real effects on policy. In April, the New York City Council passed the Climate Mobilization Act, which requires green roofs for all new buildings. The work that Viraj and his contemporaries did to prove that roofs were viable for crop production has made real change in New York City and beyond. Well, that's our show. Special thanks this week to Aaliyah Papes, Hannah Conley, Elena Santagate, and Oscar Belkin-Sessler. Meet and 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. 
Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.